welcome to the Synergist Podcast, the most man-centered theology podcast on the internet by God's providence, of course. I'm Nick. And I'm Thomas, and we are so excited to be kicking off another year of episodes. Uh, We just never expected to grow uh, as much as we have, and it's all thanks to you wonderful people who have listened, read, shared, encouraged, and supported us. And an extra special thanks to our patrons for, of course, your faithful and generous financial support it really does just make it so much easier for us to produce and host and share this content and we've seen a huge increase of people contributing on patreon patreon and sharing our content (laughs) and we're just thrilled that anyone would enjoy listening to the show as much as we enjoy making it and frankly we're just seriously blown away so thank you from the bottom of our very warmed wesleyan hearts and starting uh, this year, we're going to be starting a new project, something that we're calling a Christian theology, a Christian theology. Uh, some of you may be familiar with concepts of systematic theology or biblical theology, and in this episode, we're going to explain what we mean by Christian theology and why we think it's a helpful approach. Yeah, and one of the things we've learned this past year is that we have a, a much wider audience than we anticipated. Um We initially thought we'd have mostly Wesleyan Arminians uh, or people who are like us in that respect who are kind of nerdy and already speak the theological language and the mumbo-jumbo and all that sort of stuff. And while that is a big part of our audience, we discovered much to our delight that we've got a lot of listeners from outside our general Wesleyan, Baptist, Arminian-ish tradition, and many of whom who may not have much of a background in theology at all. That's right. Uh, we've even learned that there's a small group that listens uh, to the show and discusses it in, in their small group. And so uh, because of that, we started creating these little one-sheet episode summary guides, which you can find on our website, and we'll be uh, adding to them as we can, as we go. Um, but based on some of the feedback that we've got, we, we've heard from people that um, it might be helpful if we would uh, maybe explain some more of the theological terms and concepts that we use as we go, uh, especially for people who don't already have that background. Yeah, and it's something just as as pastors, that's something you, you kind of realize once you get your fresh out of seminary and you go straight to you know ministry, you realize everything you learned in seminary is <laughs> not as easy to translate. So when you use the word pluperfect tense or transubstantiation, people look at you kind of funny and deservedly <laughs> so. So... Exactly. So this year, we're going to work hard to be more accessible without losing, hopefully, our depth of content. Uh, For those of you who are already familiar with some of these terms and concepts, hopefully we'll help give you a little fresh perspective and maybe some ideas for ways you can teach those concepts to others. And for those of you who aren't as familiar, hopefully we can help you expand your theological vocabulary and grasp the theological concepts. And frankly, along the way, we're just going to work hard to keep it practical because we know and we've lived that Christianity is meant not just to be believed, but to be participated in, to be lived out. All of this is in support of our goal of creating a, quote, positive vision for Christian discipleship, of course, end quote. And that's something we're, we're big on as, as ministers and as people who are uh, big on practical theology as well as lived theology. Amen. Um, you know, Nick, in our excitement to to introduce this new season, I think we have skipped over something really, really important. Uh, so before we go any further, uh, what you drinking, buddy? All right. So I got here, uh, the can is, well, it's an orange can. Um, that's, that's a good start. Uh, it's got, it looks like it's a New England pale ale, uh, which means it's a kind of a hazy, more juicy uh, pale, uh, India pale ale. Uh, it's called, I think, I'm trying to, I'm not sure if this is the name of the beer or the name of the brewery. So I think I think the name of the brewery is Orange Fat Cat, which if anyone's been following me on Facebook and Twitter, uh, I have a huge fat cat who's orange, whose name is Barkley, and he weighs, <laughs> we got him weighed. We went and got him microchipped and weighed. He's now, he's actually 16 pounds, Ooh. and he's, actu- he's actually not overweight at all. He's actually, wow. that's just how he is. Um, and is I he think- part Maine Coon? We don't, no, I don't think so. He's just a big, just orange tabby. Like he's just, okay. he's a ginger cat, which means of course he doesn't have a soul, which actually comes up in our section on anthropology later on this year, but we'll <laughs> ignore that for now. Uh, and I think the beer is called, this is not my beautiful beer. Um, I think that's what it is. Uh, let's see. Uh, I, this is the first time I've actually looked at it. So I think this is 12% beer project. I don't know if that's a, like a nonprofit kind of thing, huh. but it's distri- distributed, uh, yep. Fat Fat Orange Cat Brew Company by Dorchester Brewing Company, Boston, Massachusetts. 
And so nice. it's uh, it's pretty tasty. It's I'm um, I'm gonna take a, another sip and let it sit, but it's it's juicy. I'm getting a lot of tropical kind of piney flavors, which is really nice. A little bit of mango, a little bit of maybe guava on the on the back of it, but it's tasty and it's really clean, which I really like in a hazy IPA. You got you can have that punch, you can have that juiciness, but you need to, it needs to be clean on the finish. And so far, I'm really enjoying it. Nice. That sounds good. Mm-hmm. Well, what about I you, am... bud? No, you you got to tell me what you're drinking. I'm curious now. <laughs> All right, so I am drinking uh, the the brewery is Taxman Brewing Company, Taxman okay. Brewing Company, uh, and the particular beer this time is called Frozen Assets, and it is a Belgian style milk stout with cocoa nibs. Um, oh. So yeah, it's it's a it's a dark dark stout, really good for the winter. It's super smooth. Um, it's it's definitely a little bit a little sweet got those cocoa nibs. Mm-hmm. Um, but 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 smooth, uh, heavy, which you know I, I like a, a winter stout to be, you know, just a little bit heavy. Yeah, you can almost chew it, you know, right? Just a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just uh, so I it, and they've been on sale. Uh, you can get like a six pack of cans for um, five ninety nine. I think it's been oh, to like a dollar a can. So yeah, I I'm a uh, it's I've been enjoying these over the winter. Definitely a nice way to to stay warm. Nice. And uh, just for everyone else, you're in Indiana, uh, and I forgot to ask you earlier, so I'll just ask you right now. How are you, how are you holding up in the uh, northern-ish, Midwest-ish area? Because I know it's been insanely cold because, you know, Jesus is coming back soon and the apocalypse <laughs> is happening. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> never mind. I was going to make a joke that I'm not going to make. Um, <laughs> we are uh, we're doing well. This last week was uh, brutally cold, but it's already warmed up, and we're supposed to be back into like the 50s and 60s um, starting tomorrow. So we survived the 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 polar vortex um, w- without too much trouble. Well, cheers uh, to that. Yeah, have you have you even had to put on a jacket yet this winter? You know, I did. It got it was raining outside today. It was just the worst. I mean, it was sixty degrees out and it was Oof. raining. Oh. And I can look out my window and it's just cold out there. Man, sixty, jeez, 60. you must. Yeah, do you I need mean, a blanket or a hot, hot no, cocoa? No, but I, I did have to put on socks, which did kind of set me <laughs> off a little bit. I got a bit honked <laughs> off at that. <laughs> I hate you. Mm-hmm. Um, well, whenever one of us visits the other, I think I'm going to come out there. Yeah, or or to make me suffer, I go out there to see you. <laughs> we do have some good breweries around here, so that, that could be fun. I can roll with that. Um, well, so last year we had a lot of fun with our little uh, series that we called Really Bad Pastor Joke. And this year uh, we will continue with that. We'll still have some really bad pastor's jokes, but we're also going to um, introduce a few other little silly features and games. Uh, today we're going to actually add one in at the end. So so don't stop listening early. We'll have another little uh, little fun game at the end. Um, but to keep on from last year, we are going to come up with another installment of Really Bad Pastor Joke. So, Nick, what's your joke? All right, here we go. This is something I heard in Sunday school when I was running through it at a, at a uh, breakneck pace yet last Sunday. Someone asked me, what do they call pastors in Germany? What? German shepherds. <laughs> yep, and I laughed way too hard at that. <laughs> that that was ge- that was genuine laughter right there. I, I, that, I didn't even have to fake that. That's not a laugh track yeah, or no, anything. Yeah, it's, no, was... it's good. It's not like the Ellen Show where it's just all, you know, canned laughter. <laughs> Um, All right. So did you hear about the the pastor who um, his microphone wasn't working when he walked up on stage? Um, That happened to me once or twice. Yes. Why? What happened to him? uh, The pastor walks up on stage and he says, there's something wrong with this microphone to which the congregation uh, who can't hear him responds with and also with you. <laughs> nice. As someone who's been in a liturgy once, that was that's pretty funny. <laughs> uh, all right. So um, as we launch this new project that we are calling a Christian theology, we're going to start out with a couple really foundational questions. And on the surface, these questions are going to seem really simple. Um, but I think we're going to see as we dive into this episode that the answers have profound effects on the overall task of theology. So the, the questions that we're going to answer in this episode are, what is theology and where do we start? What is theology and where do we start? So Nick, what is theology? 
Well, what is theology and where do we start? Well, theology comes from the combination of Greek words theos, meaning God, and logos, meaning word or message or the study of something oftentimes. So theology is just simply the study of God. And uh, compare this with geology, the study of the earth, biology, the study of life, psychology, the study of the mind or psyche, studology, which is the study of Nick Quint, you know, stuff like that. (laughs) Oh, that was bad. Yeah, I know. (laughs) <laughs> All right, so so theology is the, is the study of God. Who is qualified to do theology? Is it something that you have to have some kind of a degree for or credentials? or, or you, Who gets hmm. to do theology? Who's qualified? Well, I mean, every time someone talks about theology or talks about God, they're doing theology. I mean, everybody, in essence, is a theologian. The question is not if we do theology. The question is, are we doing it well or are we doing it badly? If, are we being faithful to what God has called us to be, exercising, we might say, both heart and mind together without letting either run in, you know, rampant, not, not letting either impulse of heart and mind separately run just rampant. And so anyone who thinks about God and tries to understand what God is doing is in some sense a theologian. I like that. That's a, that's a great way to put it. Uh, so we always say, and we've said from the beginning, that uh, Christianity is meant to be embodied. It's meant to be lived out, put into practice, not merely believed or or, or assented to mentally. Um, so, in light of that, I mean, if if Christianity is meant to be embodied and lived, then why do we even need to go about this task of theology? Well, what we I think, and this is just me thinking, what what we believe about God is directly connected, I think, to how we live how we interact with the world and the people around us. I mean, we all have have theological foundations, even if uh, we don't know exactly what they are or how they affect us. We all believe something about God, even if that, even if it's that, for example, God doesn't exist. That's a belief about God. And that will work its way into our lives somehow. So in essence, what we think about God can have a direct effect on how we live our lives and how we treat our neighbors. Um, if you think God is a certain way and by implication wants you to live that way, you're going to live that way because right. you want, you're seeking at essence, if you're trying to honor God, you'll try to honor God, whether that's right or wrong or done right or wrong is, is a different question. But I, I think that leads us all to kind of another important question is how, how, like the, how can we study God? Like, how do we study God? Right. Because like is paleontologists, right? That can examine fossils. They dig in the dirt well, and they fossils, find fossils, f- you know, cause dinosaurs, you know, they may not exist <laughs> and stuff like that. Cool. Yeah. It's yeah. <laughs> like um, the weather. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Boy, I'm just on fire tonight. Thank you. Fat orange cat on, on fire. Like, like, like the, the global warming. Uh, yep. 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 Uh, okay. Sorry. Back on task. Uh, <laughs> so pa- uh, paleontologists, can, they can examine fossils, right? They they can dig in the right. dirt. They can find these bones. They can they can study them. They can hold them and look at them. And, and and biologists can examine plants and animals. They can dissect them. They can look at cells under a microscope. Um, but we can't we can't do these things with God, right? God can't be measured. He can't be weighed. God can't be dissected. We can't put God under a microscope or examine God's makeup with a mass spectrometer. Um, the, the Christian belief has always been that God is a non-physical, spiritual being. And so the only way for us to know anything about God is for God to somehow reveal God's self to us. Um, and, and there's a term for this. The term for this, of course, is revelation. Oh, you mean the last book of the Bible with the candlesticks, the beast, the false prophet, and the lake of fire? You know, the book I'm writing, exegetical devotional commentary <laughs> on that one? Um, not quite, not quite. Um, but the book of Revelation in the Bible is actually uh, an example of one kind of revelation, right? The the mm-hmm. author of Revelation was given a divine, supernatural vision and uncovering or an unveiling of spiritual realities. So the book of Revelation is an example of revelation, but I don't mean the book of Revelation when I say that we need revelation to understand God. Gotcha. Although the book of Revelation does help us understand God properly interpreted. Yes. Of course. Yes. Of course. Of course. Uh, okay. So in order to study God, God must first reveal God's self. God must make this act of divine self-disclosure, must kind of unveil God's self, roll out the red carpet, we might say. So that leads to the question of how God does this, or maybe stated another way, what are the sources of Revelation? From where does Revelation come from? Exactly. Um 
So Christian theologians and philosophers throughout history have identified several different but but often interconnected sources of revelation. And there are basically mm-hmm. uh, two basic categories of revelation. There's general revelation and there's special revelation. Hmm. Right. General revelation, as the name suggests, is universal, universally accessible. For example, it's it's also often referred to as natural revelation, meaning that God has revealed something about God's self and nature itself, which everyone can see. For example, I'm holding up a can of uh, uh, This Is Not My Beautiful Beer by the Fat Orange Cat, and this is, in essence, a testament to God's uh, existence, because one, it is quite good, and two, uh, it's something I can see, I can look at. What, and was it Benjamin Franklin who said that beer is proof that God loves us and wants us to be happy? If he didn't say it, someone smart did. It, that would be an example of natural revelation. Yeah, beer is an example of natural revelation. <laughs> yep. Uh, meaning some, God has revealed something about God's self in nature itself, which everyone can see. Hence, taking a sip, I am enjoying natural revelation right now. <laughs> and so uh, theologians and philosophers throughout history, um, even just general theists, not even necessarily Christians, have recognized that nature itself kind of reveals a creator. We might say the fingerprints of God are in creation in some sense. They've often talked about what's called the book of nature. Augustine, I think, is at least has been attributed, had that phrase attributed to him, although I'm not 100% certain if that is Augustine. But if Augustine said something right, I want to finally tip my hat to him. He, the, he 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 did talk about. Um, he, I, it's not exactly the book of nature, but he does talk. He does use the word "the book" in reference to creation. So, oh, yes, okay. It, it okay. Does uh, he's he's part of it? Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. And and so this cheers is, to cheers uh, to Augustine or, cheers or Augustine, to Augustine or however you say it. Hold on, Augustine. There we go. Cheers to you, sir. Well, may you sleep in peace. Uh, and, and this explains, I think, why so many of us now and throughout history have been just kind of filled with a sense of awe and wonder at, nat- at nature, at, at creation. Like you go scuba diving, you see just incredible things. You go um, rock climbing in, in the middle of nowhere and you just look around at, at, at the structure of, of, of creation. You take a sip of beer, for example. And so the Apostle Paul, one of our first Christian theologians and author of more than I would say half the New Testament, uh, well, hmm, I'd say 25% of the New Testament, uh, if we're going by authorship, but that's, you know, 25%, says, uh, and this is one of the more powerful phrases in Romans one twenty. ever since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, uh, God's eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen because they are understood through the things that God has made. So in essence, God's, fi- you can tell that something has created because you can see the fingerprints of this thing in creation itself. Uh, exactly. And within this category of general or natural revelation are also things like philosophical proofs for the existence of God, right? Mm-hmm. So you'll have um, theists and philosophers and theologians making arguments that like the existence of morality or the existence of beauty or the existence of logic and order, all of these things can be understood as evidence of God's existence and character. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and again, this whole idea uh, of general re- or natural revelation has been referred to as the book of nature. Hmm. But in, in addition to general or natural revelation, we believe that God has revealed God's self uniquely and particularly to different individuals and groups in a way that is often designated special revelation. So Thomas, uh, while I take another sip of natural revelation, uh, what are some <laughs> examples of that? Uh, so anytime we read the Bible uh, and we, and we, some character in the Bible has a unique individual encounter with God. That's an example of special revelation. So, for example, when when God calls Abraham and makes his covenant with Abraham in the book of Genesis, uh, that's an example of um, special oh. revelation. Um, when God appears to Moses out of the burning bush in the book of Exodus and, and reveals aspects of who he is that not everybody gets to know, that's an example of special revelation. Anytime God gives visions or messages to and through his prophets, that's those are examples of special revelation. And then from there, uh, even scripture itself can be understood as a form of special revelation. Hmm. Right. So it's always been the understanding, at least throughout Christian history, that scripture is God's written self-revelation. So, in other words, what we're saying is God wrote the Bible, right? Well, well uh, 
Yes and no. I mean, Christians believe that all scripture is divinely inspired or given by God divinely. I mean, that's a phrase that comes out of 2 Timothy 3.16 in the New Testament where the, the writer says, quote, every scripture is written or rather every scripture is inspired by God. The words inspired by God come from a single Greek word, theopneustos, which literally means God breathed, you know, neusta, uh, pneuma, breath or wind, theos, God. So God breathed and God, you know, gave this. And all scripture is, in some way or another, breathed out by God. Right. But this doesn't mean that, like, God sat down um, at a table with, a, with a, a stylus and a tablet or with a quill and a scroll or behind a MacBook Pro because God obviously uses a MacBook. Um, of course, yeah, and, of course. Um, and and it, it doesn't mean that God just, like, sat down and wrote the Bible just as God, right? It's always been understood that the various books of the Bibles had uh, books of the Bible had human authors, but that these human authors were in some way, as the writer of Second Peter put it, moved by the Holy Spirit. Hmm. Yeah, and I think there's a lot of different theories about how this works the the how of inspiration, the theories of inspiration, and we'll get into some of those in a, in a later episode. But the point here is that. Christians believe that scripture is a, a form of God's self-revelation or God's self-disclosure to us. In other words, we can learn about God, in essence, by studying the words of God, and that is by studying scripture. Right. Um, so scripture is a source of special revelation. We've got general, we've got special, but there's another, there's one final source of revelation. Uh, and it's one that we've saved until the end here because we think it's probably the most important for Christian theology um, and by now, uh, our listeners have probably already guessed what it is, but just in case they haven't, uh, tell them what it is, Nick. Well, it's obviously John Piper books and sermons. If you don't know who John Piper is, d don't worry about it. He's a super popular Calvinist <laughs> preacher and author. We find his theology, well, unpersuasive, we might say. Uh, but we still consider him, you know, a brother in Christ. But in all seriousness, what are... The, the most important source of revelation for the Christian is what, Thomas? N.T. Wright books, of course. <laughs> now, if you don't know who N.T. Wright is, he's one of the most famous biblical scholars of our time. And, and while we do really appreciate his work, uh, he's done great work, uh, we don't consider it to be the most important source of revelation. Uh, that designation, of course, is reserved for Jesus himself. So if it's not John Piper, if it's not N.T. Rizzle, uh, you'll need to elaborate. So what does it mean when we say that Jesus uniquely, uh, and as opposed to other forms of revelation, uniquely is the source of revelation? Or in other words, how is Jesus the source of revelation when other sources, though helpful and needed, are seen as secondary? So what it means when we say that Jesus himself is the, the most important source of revelation, it means that Jesus shows us what God is like more clearly and more fully than any other source of revelation. So I'm going to say that again. To say that Jesus is the most important source of revelation is to say that Jesus shows us what God is like more clearly and more fully than any other source of revelation. I think we can tweet that later. But anyway, uh, <laughs> and, and what is our basis for that belief specifically, that Jesus shows us what God is like more clearly and more fully than any other source of revelation? What is our basis for that belief? So we'll get into that in a lot more depth in a later episode. But Boo, basically... answer it now. Not playing with you. you <laughs> uh, basically, uh, our basis for that belief is the words of Jesus himself in combination with the words of some of the other Christian writers who we believe were writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So, for example, in the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 14, verses 6 through 9, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he says the following. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will know my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. 
Uh, so then one of his disciples, whose name was Philip, says to Jesus, he says, Lord, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. And, and Jesus responds to Philip and he says, have I been with you all this time, Philip, and you still do not know me? And then he goes on to say something that is just absolutely remarkable, absolutely incredible, uh, scandalous, blasphemous even, depending on who's listening. Jesus goes on to say, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And Give that room... Messiah a microphone. <laughs> <to drop. laughs> now, uh, obviously, we, we don't have time to get into all of the, the metaphysics and the theology that, that, that's behind that. But, but this is a really big deal. Basically, what Jesus is saying here, look, if you've seen me, you've seen God. If you've known me, you've known God. In other words, what he's saying, if you want to know what God is like, just look at me. That's a really big deal. Hmm. And this is not a one-off. This is not a singular thing This ha that happens. This happens all throughout. Uh, the, in, uh, the writers of the New Testament talk about this all over the place. So in the very first chapter of his gospel in John, John, 1, 18, uh, 1, John chapter 1, verse 18 in the Common English Bible, he writes, no one has ever seen God. I mean, think about that just on its own for a second. No one has ever seen God. God, the only son who is at the Father's side, has made God known. This is, of course, in reference to Jesus, and the phrase made him known comes from the Greek word, oh, I'm going to butcher this, I've never been good at pronouncing Greek, exegeomai, exegeomai, I can translate Greek very well, but speaking out loud, exegeomai, that actually makes more sense, from which we get our English word exegesis, and in biblical studies, specifically in New Testament, because it's Greek, exegesis is the process of interpreting and explaining a passage of scripture in the context that it was written, so other other literature, other uses of script of, of language throughout that time, and so forth, uh, and elsewhere, this verb, this has made God known, or made known verb, is used to explain or describe various unknown concepts, or at least concepts that were unknown until they were talked about. For example, in Acts 15.21, where we read, quote, The whole assembly kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul as they told, that verb, of all the signs and wonders that God had done through them among the Gentiles. Here, Paul and Barnabas reveal or explain or make known what God has done through them for the Gentiles, or may maybe, as I would translate, the people of the nations. In other words, what John is saying and what Acts is saying is that Jesus and others exegetes God. Jesus explains and interprets God for us. That's wild. Jesus, like, Jesus exegetes God, right? We exegete scripture, but Jesus exegetes God. That's, that's huge. Uh, similarly, uh, the writer of the New Testament book of Hebrews says, says something along the same lines. He puts it, or she puts it this way. Um, Long ago, this is Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors in many and various ways by the prophets, right? So there's lots of sources of revelation. That's what the, the writer of Hebrews is saying. Uh, but in these last days, God has spoken to us by a son whom God appointed heir of all things through whom also God created the worlds. He is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being. In other words, so, so the, the writer of Hebrews talking about Jesus here, that's what he's the son is Jesus. Jesus is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being. In other words, what the writer of Hebrews is saying, if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. Jesus reveals God to us most clearly and most completely. Hmm. And for me, I, I think I see this most clearly in Paul's epistle to the Colossians. And yes, I know I'm one of those weird people who thinks Paul actually wrote Colossians. Hey, I'm with you. Yeah, okay, good. So two weird people. All right, cool. <laughs> and we'll start in verse 11. And this is my own translation of the Greek because I took a class at Fuller on this and I had to translate Colossians. And, and so I read, uh, having been empowered in all power, according to the mightiness of his glory and all perseverance and long suffering with joyfulness, joyfulness, giving thanks to the father, the one who has made you fit to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. 
He has emancipated us from the sovereignty of the darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, through whom we have liberation, the forgiveness of sins. And here's the important part. This is in uh, Colossians 1, uh, verse 15. He, that is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the image of the unseen God, the firstborn over all creation. Let me say that again. No one has ever seen God, but Jesus is the image of the God who has never been seen. Mm-hmm. The firstborn over all created things. So if we want to see what God has done and is doing and will do, we look to the image of his beloved son, the firstborn from among the dead. For me and the other texts above, this is the basis for the notion of we might call Christocentric revelation. Christocentric revelation. God in Christ has revealed God's self to us, and in these days he's spoken to us in the form of a son who has disclose the apocalyptic God to us so that we might know who this God is. And and we could go on and on, right? We could find lots of different examples showing this very same thing, that Jesus is the the clearest, uh, most complete revelation of God. But uh, we don't want to get ahead of ourselves. That'll be for a later episode. Mm -hmm. Uh, So to recap what we've covered so far, theology is the study of God. Theology is the study of God. In order to study God's self, God must, in order to study God, God must reveal God's self. There must be revelation. And there are sources. There are several different sources of revelation. So this leads to a really important question. If there are several different sources of revelation, where do we start to to understand God? Yeah, that's the perennial question, and Karl Barth spent several hundred pages on that. And <laughs> it, it's what theologians mean when they talk about the question of uh, prolegomena. Wait, wait, wait. Pro what? Prolegomena. P-R-O-L-E-G-O-M-E-N-A. Okay, so this, is that prolegomena? Does that mean like you're in favor of legomania? You're like pro-legomania? Is that... Pro-legomania, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was always more of a fan of hockey cards instead of Legos, but sure, we can roll with that, yeah. <laughs> no, no, prolegomena is a combination of the Greek words pros and lego. Uh, pros uh, meaning toward or before, and lego meaning speak. And so this is, that is to say, prolegomena is the word or words spoken beforehand. In essence, it is the prologue of theology. Uh, prolegomena is the prologue of theology. It answers the question, where do we start? And it says you start right here and explaining and exploring what it means to talk about theology. So what we're doing now, in essence, is prolegomena. Very good. Uh, and, and different theologians throughout history have chosen to begin in different places. Uh, right? For example, Thomas Aquinas in his Summa Theologica uh, begins with a kind of general or natural theology. He begins by making rational and, and philosophical proofs for the existence of God, and then he goes from there. He, he tries to prove rationally, prove philosophically um, that God exists, and then he continues to make his case specifically for Christian revelation as he continues. Uh, and there's there are some advantages to that, right? The mm-hmm. advantage is that uh, beginning with general revelation is... Uh, well, general. <laughs> um, you, you don't need to have any prior commitments about the nature of Scripture, right? Which is which can be helpful if, if you're dealing with somebody you know who doesn't already believe that Scripture is inspired to start uh, with what's general, or what can be observed or deduced. That um, that can be helpful. Uh, there are also disadvantages, though. One of the disadvantages might be um, that. There are lots of people who just don't care much uh, or, or know about philosophical and logical, logical arguments. So that, that, hmm. that may not prove persuasive for people who don't already have that background. Um, but, but even if they do, and let's say you, you can convince somebody through um, theological and, and uh, through logical and rational discourse that God exists, there, there's, that doesn't necessarily mean that the God that, that you prove through logical argumentation is the same as the God revealed to us in Jesus. Hmm. Um, And there's so much more to Christianity than simply believing in the existence of God, right? Almost all religious systems in human history have believed in God or the gods or something like God. So just because you can prove that some sort of divine being, unmoved mover, um, first cause exists, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's the same God revealed to us as the personal loving parent um, revealed in Jesus. 
So hmm. advantages and disadvantages, but y y y some people choose to start with general or natural theology. Yeah, and, and there is, like you mentioned, a, a lot of ways to do that really well. You can see it uh, in certain uh, Christian philosophers like William Lane Craig starting general and kind of narrowing the, the, the field, so to speak, of evidence to get, you know, to for that. Um, I found that quite helpful. That's one of the reasons why I basically became a Christian again after seven years as a, or rather five years as an agnostic-ish, deistic person. So the idea of general looking around at creation, there is a sense of power to that because it's something you can see. You can feel it in your hands. You can know it to be a thing. Um, others have, But, but it's of, worth pointing yeah, out that there have, there have been lots of people, right, like, um, as we know now, like lots of our founding fathers for the United States, they all believed in God. They believed they were deists, but the God they believed in was was very different than the God revealed in Jesus. They believed in sort of the the cosmic clockmaker who just sort of set things in motion and then stood back and watched, which is very different than the God revealed to us in Jesus. Right? So, oh, absolutely. Simply yeah. simply believing in God um, does not a Christian make, so to speak. Yeah, and belief without praxis is simply affirming a proposition that leads to societal and personal destruction. But that's a separate point. Um, <laughs> others have uh, have chosen to begin their theological task with the Bible. So like Maria and the Sound of Music, I won't sing this, they, they think that the very beginning is a very good place to start. And they might start and say Genesis 1-1 and creation and build a theology chronologically throughout the Bible. Uh, and in some sense, that makes a bit of logical like sense, like it makes some sense. But there are a couple potential pitfalls with that. Uh, first, it's an approach that really only works if somebody already believes that the Bible is divinely inspired, which more and more people, of course, do not in our culture. Uh, additionally, when Jesus comes along, he shows us that the portrait of God presented in the first part of the Bible we called the First Testament or the Old Testament more mo most people call it the Old Testament. I tend to call it the First Testament uh, that they we that. The first part of the the first part of the Bible we call the Old Testament is incomplete. Many biblical theologies give equal weight to everything in the Bible, but we know that not everything in the Bible is weighed equally. Uh, we're not Biblians, followers of the Bible in general. We're Christians. We follow the crucified and risen Christ in particular. Um, and, for example, another reason why you wouldn't want to start in Genesis 1, uh, if you're just starting out, is it takes a really long time to get to Jesus. <laughs> right. And Jesus is kind of the bedrock for everything, as, <laughs> as we're kind of mentioning. It's not to say you don't want to ever start in Genesis, but you, you kind of need Jesus to make sense of a lot of this. Um, and while uh, that might sound a bit sacrilegious on the surface, I mean, I'm, I'm enjoying you know my little sacrilege at the moment, you already know <laughs> it to be true. For example, uh, you enjoy probably enjoy some bacon and shrimp on occasion, and you probably don't sacrifice any livestock when you sin. Uh, if you're a follower of the Bible, you would. Or if you started in Genesis and waited a really long time to get to Jesus, you might. <laughs> and so we, we really need to stop and think. There is a, a sense of logic to it, but you need to begin with Jesus in order for the Old Testament to have, we might say, the full revelatory power that it has. So we've already tipped our hand um, throughout this episode. I, th I think we've we've tipped our hand. But um, we think the right place to begin when doing theology, when choosing um, a source of revelation from which to, to launch off uh, as a launching pad for theology, we think the right place to begin is with Jesus. Uh, if he really is the image of the unseen God, if he really is the exact representation of God's nature, if he really is the one who exegetes God, then it makes sense that we would start there and work our way out. Now, mm. I, I already know what some people are thinking. They're thinking, you don't know anything about Jesus without the Bible, so you have to start with the Bible. You've been piper juked. You lose. <laughs> and the reason I know that some people are thinking that is because I used to think and say the exact same thing. Mm. Um, and, and here's the thing. It's technically a true statement, right? It's technically a true statement. Anything that we say about Jesus, we do find in the Bible. But, but it's, it's not quite as simple as that. Uh, you see, we don't believe that the stories about Jesus are true just because they're in the Bible. Now, hang with me here. We don't, I'm going to say that again. We don't believe the stories about Jesus are true just because they're in the Bible. We believe the stories about Jesus are in the Bible because they are true accounts of what actually happened in history. You got to say that for me again. That was too good. You got to say that last one for me again. Okay. We don't believe 
the stories about Jesus are true just because they're in the Bible. We believe the stories about Jesus are in the Bible because they are true accounts of what actually happened in history. Let me give you an example. Um, Nick, do you exist because you have a birth certificate or do you have a birth certificate because you were born in history? I really want to say the first one just to be a little turd, but you know you know what I'm actually going to say. Right, exactly. Your birth certificate is a document of something that happened in history. The New Testament documents, the reason that these these works were compiled and included in the Bible is because something in history had already happened. Now we're going to we're going to do an entire episode on this later on. Um but the bottom line is that as Christians doing a Christian theology, we must make sure that everything is built and centered on Christ in particular, not just the Bible in general. Hmm. So in other words, and this might answer some lingering questions, we're not doing what some have written. We're not doing what some have written like the the people have written quote systematic theology for example th- uh, uh, literature that's often billed itself as that we're not doing that and for a lot of modern evangelical systematic theology it's simply a compilation of meagerly disconnected sort of connected proof texts for the purpose of propping up preconceived ideas <laughs> um, that is to put bluntly the approach of such theologians like Wayne Grudem is to simply compile certain texts with a certain framework in mind and that can be done with Bible Gateway, it can be done with uh, Bible Hub or any sort of concordance, but that doesn't actually give you theology. It doesn't actually give you anything. Just simply compiling texts and going, well, these ten texts talk about baptism, therefore baptism is not <laughs> how we how we should do it. Our, our goal is not simply to list Bible verses disconnected from their context and go, ta-da, as if, as, <laughs> as if, we, as if that's somehow reputable or, or helpful to people seeking to live a, a coherent life in light of the revelation of Christ. So in this project, we're not also limiting ourselves exclusively to Scripture. And as good Christians who exist in history, we have to take philosophy into account, the, the history and development of doctrine uh, into account, and reason into account. So we have to take bigger pieces of where You're we come such from. You're a good Wesleyan. I know, I know. We're not don't, just, don't forget experience. Don't yeah, forget experience, experience, yes, and Christian experience. Um, <laughs> uh, and we're not just doing apologetics in terms of arguing for the faith. But the big, Although we, we, we will yeah. do some apologetics. We're, we're going to do some apologetics, which will hopefully help some of you um, be more comfortable sharing and defending your faith. Right, yeah, and exactly. And so when we take philosophy, experience, history, reason, and all these sorts of things into account, they don't supplant Scripture, but they bolster what is already present. And so it's another way of us being fully orbed in how we think about our world and what God is doing, not just, as we might say, living with blinders on reading the text disconnected from what God has done in history. Um we're also not doing merely biblical studies, and as someone who did his master's in biblical studies, um, this is good for me. Uh, that is, in biblical studies, we're not just talking about what Scripture alone says on a given topic, although solid biblical exegesis will inform everything we do, or at least will will attempt to do. Yeah. Rather, we're seeking to evolve ourselves in bigger questions within the Catholic stream of the Christian tradition. That means, and by Catholic, we don't mean uh, Roman Catholic per se, although we will hopefully draw from major theologians from Eastern Orthodox, the Eastern Orthodox tradition, the patristic period, uh, the early church fathers, and the Roman Catholic Church, and Protestant sources. So in, our, in, in my eyes, and I think you share this as well, if it's true in the Roman Catholic Church, it's true for us. That's what right. is What is true is true regardless of who says it. And That's we right. don't want to limit ourselves to, well, evangelical theology, which while I find myself in that stream there's a lot more to evangelical theology and theology in general than the last hundred years. Yes. Yes. Very good. At this point, we want to reiterate that, that while we, you know, in this project, we do hope to present um, what is maybe a fresh take on Christian theology for, for many of our listeners. Our, our goal is not simply to fill people's heads with more information, right? Hmm. Ultimately, our goal is transformation. Hmm. Not just information, but transformation. We want to present a theological worldview that people can practically live into. 
Um, in other words, as we've said before, we want to present a positive vision of Christian discipleship, which, which means we actually want to help people follow Jesus and participate in the kingdom of God here on earth. So we're not just, we're not just, we don't want just information and we don't want to just fill people's heads and, and, and lots of big theological words. We actually want to help people live this stuff out, become faithful followers, devotees, mm-hmm. disciples, apprentices of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And how this will look often is we talk about questions of creation and of what it means to be human and what it means that Jesus was Jewish and all these questions we'll explore later on. It means ultimately we need to ask really good questions about what God is doing in God's world. And that also means at heart asking good questions like Jesus asked good questions. Mm. Um, and so, for example, just as, as a final note, when Jesus asked questions about um, what does this have to do with me or, or questions like some of the most profound and heartbreaking questions like, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Our, our thought process should be, how does that impact the Christian life? How does asking questions and seeking to view scripture through the, the, the lens of Jesus, or we might say, how do we think about the words about the word of God? How do we think about the words of the word of God? And in doing so, uh, we might just find some interesting things in the words of God about the word of God. And so let's unpack a little bit. The words of God about the word of God. What, what we're saying there is we're saying that Jesus is the word of God, right? John 1.1, 1, 1, ding, ding, ding. John 1.1, 1, 1, all the way through, through um, which I'm preaching on this weekend. Um, John, Jesus is the word of God. Scripture are the words of God about the word of God. I, that, that's, a, that's a great, great phrase. So it's not it's not just that the Bible itself is the word of God, although in a sense it is, but the true, the most complete, the most clear, the most perfect word of God, revelation of God, picture of God is Jesus himself. Scripture points to that. I'm trying, I think it's uh, Brian Zond who says, um, I believe in the perfect, inerrant, infallible Word of God, and His name is Jesus. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He had it. The, the Word of God had a beard. I think I heard somebody else say recently. I don't remember who it was. The Word um, of God drank wine. So yeah, there you go. Okay. Um, but <laughs> but yeah. And so in, in in future episodes, we'll talk about the words about the Word of God before we get to the Word of God. But just think about that uh, in your own life. When you read Scripture, you're reading ultimately the words. Of, about the word of God. And so that's it for this opening episode. We thank you for listening and hanging out with us. But I have one final question for Thomas. I have some some nerdy Bible trivia. Woohoo! I would like to spray on you. So, uh, nerds, uh, no peeking, no Googling, no, none like that. And Thomas, I, I'm taking you on your word that you haven't Googled this. In Greek, that is, in the language of our Lord... What? <laughs> Probably Aramaic, but you know, I, I think Jesus spoke Greek. But anyway, in Greek, what is the shortest Bible verse? Oof. What is the shortest Bible verse in terms of letters? In terms of letters, like counted okay. letters. Counted letters. So in English, it's Jesus wept. Correct. Um, in English. In English. So I'm thinking this is a trick question. So it's probably not Jesus wept in Greek. Um. All right, help me help me narrow it down. Is this uh, is this Gospels or it, this it, is... it is in the Synoptic Gospels? Yes, it is in the so, Synoptic, okay, Synoptic, Gospels. Synoptic Gospels. Synoptic Gospels. Okay. It's not um, in Paul. One of one of the close ones is in Paul, but the, not the shortest. Okay, Synoptic Gospels. Um, narrow it down. Which which Synoptic? Uh, okay, I'll give you. So we'll do this. You have three hints. So you've, okay. you've had one. So Synoptic. It is in Luke's Gospel. Luke's Gospel. So that's two. Two. Okay. Um, if you're googling this, I swear to our Lord, I will flip this table right now. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not. Scout's honor. Scout's um, honor. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. I, well, I wasn't a scout, but uh, me the, neither. So I'll se- take that. Seminarian's I'll take that honor. Word. Yeah, seminarian's honor. There we go. Yeah. Um, okay. Gospel of Luke. Um, and it won't help to look it up in English. Ironically enough, <laughs> I found that out the hard way. Yeah. Okay, so is is it a is it its own is it's it a its single verse Bible in English verse. too? Yes, it's its own verse in English too. Okay, so that's three. There we go. So, and I'll give Dang you it. another ten seconds to think. Uh, um, Five seconds. 
I don't know. Ding, ding, ding. All right. It is the shortest Bible verse in Greek is Luke 20, verse 30. And it reads, Kai ha duteros. Kai ha duteros. And the second. That is 12 letters in Greek. Jesus wept is 16 letters in Greek. Ah. So it's one of those verses that you just like and go, what the snickerdoodle were they thinking when they put verses, verse numbers in the Bible? So yes, it is Luke 20, verse 30, and the second. And the second. And the second. I never would have guessed that. I know, that's why I picked it. I was like, oh, this is good. Uh, and I, I, there is a textual variant there, but I didn't include that. I just was like, all right. Let's, I didn't want to get too nerdy because I felt that would be me. So just for the context, just for the context, just so people understand. Verse 27 in Luke chapter 30. I'll, I'll just read it for people. Some of the Sadducees, who were Sadducee, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a, man, a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. Verse 30. The second, and verse 31, and then the third married her. It makes no sense why our English Bibles, from the very beginning, put that as a single verse. But they did. Hence... 12 letters in Greek, hence Bible trivia. Pretty good. Never never would have guessed that. I'm usually, I'm usually pretty good at Bible trivia. Yeah, me too. So I saw well, that and I'm like, I, I was thinking it was the one in Paul, which is yeah. Rejoice Always, which is 14 letters, but apparently okay. I was wrong too when I first thought of it. So, fair enough. Wow, we are we are nerds. We are, I mean, there's, we, are, we are nerds. Yeah. Well, all right. Uh, this has been the very first episode in our new Christian or in our new series on a Christian theology. Uh, it, listen, if you guys are interested and you want to help us out, please feel free to chip in on Patreon. Right? Patreon, yeah. Yeah. Or, all right. Cool. I got it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Pa- Patreon. <laughs> <laughs> I always get nervous now. I think I know it, and then I'm like, no, I've always got it so wrong. On Patreon, um, so we we've got you can come in at as low as a dollar like it really does um help us to to produce and distribute this content um we've got we've got some goals on there if you want to help us out we'd appreciate it if you can't do that we totally understand um but any any share if you if you can like and share the content give us reviews a a follow or a shout out all the above um we definitely we don't show partiality but we uh, again we can't do what we do without your support um and we we get do what has already been done because of those who have supported us so thank you again um and also we we are now at an average of five stars on itunes with 24 reviews so john piper's one star review got canceled out finally so (laughs) yep yep and so this has been another episode of the synergist podcast the most man-centered theology podcast on the internet by god's providence thanks for listening everyone